0: Father, take your word by your spirit and impress it upon our hearts. There's no better way we can spend our time in worshiping you than to do it in spirit and in truth. And without the word of God before us, Father, we would not have the truth. May the words I speak, Father, be words that you have prepared, words that are according to your spirit, words that are consistent with your truth. But, Father, where my errors Are my own. I pray you would replace those with your truth by your will in the hearts of those who hear We pray this in Jesus name. Amen Genesis chapter 33. It is a new dawn For Jacob at this point in the story. He's encountered the Lord in a powerful way from what we saw last week in Genesis 32 He had engaged in that hand-to-hand combat between What we know to be the angel of the Lord and Jacob himself Now, that was not a test of strength, as we learned last week. That was actually a test of wills, one in which the Lord was determined to show Jacob the folly of trying to strive against him. After that entire night of struggle, the Lord strikes Jacob supernaturally with a powerful blow, causing his hip to go out of joint. And by that, Jacob got the point. And as a result, Jacob demanded the Lord bless him in light of this coming threat that he's been worried about for a couple of days now, the threat of Esau's arrival, his brother. So now Jacob, or Israel, as the Lord now calls him, is ready to move forward from this moment in his life with this new understanding of what it means to be in covenant with the living God. But there's still that issue of Esau. So Esau's arrival has been really that event that's propelled Jacob into this new transformation into this fear, into this attempt to strive for his own sake, and then finally into this conflict with God that arrived at his better understanding that he could rest in God, let God do the fighting for him. But this fear of Esau still dominates in Jacob's heart. And as another example here of the Lord turning all things to good for the elect, we see Jacob's struggle now becoming a cause for God to disciple Jacob. So now we move forward in the way that he meets his brother. If you remember last week at the very end of chapter 32 in verse 31, we see dawn breaking appropriately enough. The sun rising on a new Jacob in verse 31. It says, now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over the Penuel and he was limping on his thigh. So the the new day greets Jacob. But the new Jacob has still to do battle time to time anyway with the old Jacob. The old Jacob isn't totally gone, as we'll soon see. Let's start in Genesis 33, verse 1, and see what we find. Well, then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them, and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Well, if you remember from last week, the map we looked at on your Bibles, hopefully, or in the notes, Jacob was sitting just on the south, uh, on the north side, rather, of the Jabbok. Now he's called that region the Pinuel because it means the face of God. He crosses now to join his family. And as promised, Esau arrives coming from the south with 400 men. Now, remember, it was the news that Esau was bringing 400 men with him that triggered Jacob's worries in the first place. That's what made Jacob consider that his brother was coming with the intent to harm him. Why else would you bring 400 men with you? So now as Jacob sees the large force approaching, he's still not sure what's going to happen. Now, earlier he had divided his family. We read this last week. He took his family and he divided them into different camps with the intent that at least some of them might be saved in the course of a battle. Now we see how he actually divided them up, what the actual divisions look like. Jacob places the two concubines in the very foremost ranks of this column of his family. That is Bilhah and Zilpah were in the front. And then with the maids, he put the children of the maids. So that would be Dan, Nephthali, Gad and Asher are all in the front ranks. Next, he places Leah and her children, which would have been Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah Issachar and Zebulun all of Leah's children and then lastly he puts Rachel and Joseph now do his actions in the way he aligns all of these family members do those actions give you any doubt concerning where his heart is toward his family members isn't it just like writing it on a wall in the way that he's done this clearly he's put the most expendable members of the family in the front. And he's put the most valuable members in the rear ranks, in the protected rear ranks. Now, we know Rachel's always been the woman he loved, so that's no surprise. Rachel in the back, Leah comes next. And, of course, concubines, they're by far the least valued members of the family. They're up front. But now you see him doing something with his sons, too. Joseph, the favored son of Rachel, is in the back with her. Now, do you think the rest of Jacob's sons got the point also? As you're walking in this column toward an uncertain encounter with Jacob's estranged brother, you can't help but look around and notice, well, look who he put up front. And look who he's got back there protected with Mama, with Rachel. And those handmaidens and their children have to know that they've been set up to be the first to die in any battle that might ensue. Leah can only see clearly she's less valuable than Rachel. And the children... They see the pecking order from top to bottom. Jacob has placed the youngest in the highest regard. And that's very counter custom. Customarily, the oldest would have had the most value by far, double portion for him with the inheritance and all. And then down in rank structure by age, the youngest being the least valued, the least rewarded in the family, so to speak, the least in terms of precedence. But Jacob's totally reversed that and put Joseph in the best position. These distinctions he has made within his family, not only among his wives, but particularly among his sons, are going to sow seeds of tremendous jealousy and hatred within his family. And the irony here is that Jacob himself was once a victim of just this kind of favoritism within the family. Because in his case, God had directed his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, to make him the favored child. And yet Isaac had overruled that and had favored Esau instead. You know, the acorn didn't fall far from the tree. Here's here's Jacob doing exactly the same thing within his family, repeating that same mistake. And the ramifications of his behavior are serious for him and for his sons. In fact, the effect that these ramifications have in his life nearly crushes him, as we'll see later. Now, remember last week, I noted that Jacob's new name, Israel, it will come and go in the narrative as Moses records the story of Genesis. And that's very different than what we saw with Abraham. When Abram became Abraham, the word Abram disappears from the narrative. It never returns. But in this case, you're going to see Jacob still used commonly. In fact, it'll be rare for Moses to use the name Israel in describing Jacob. When he does choose to use it, though, it becomes a sign or an indicator for us. It's an indication of Jacob walking with the Lord in some manner. For the most part, his name is remaining Jacob in in the narrative. So we're going to continue to call him Jacob, but note when his old nature gives way to his new nature and Israel becomes the name. So let's go back to the story as we study in Genesis chapter 33. Here's Esau now arriving and Jacob meeting him. And Jacob, we're told, bows seven times in the process of greeting Esau and his company of 400 men. What Jacob is doing here is something we've seen him do already. He is trying to Switch roles with Esau. By that I mean, Jacob is the proper holder of the patriarchal birthright. He obtained that birthright from his father, Isaac. We know that story. And that was the cause for the rift in the family back when Jacob fled for Laban. And every time he's dealt with Esau so far, whether through the gifts that he sent ahead of him or now in person, he keeps trying to grant the role of leader back to Esau. When you bow before a man like this, you're acknowledging him to be your superior. But in patriarchal terms, that is not the case. Esau is not Jacob's superior. Jacob has the birthright, and you can't change that in this culture. What Jacob is doing here is relying on deception again in a subtle way. This is the old Jacob. This is the man who uses deception to try to gain what he desires rather than resting on what the Lord has said. And what kind of deception is he using here? Well, it's one that we're prone to use, perhaps without even realizing that it is, in fact, a form of deception. It's called flattery. He is granting Esau a title and a privilege that is not accurate in an attempt to win favor. And that's really what flattery is all about. It's dishonesty couched in such a way that it might win someone over. It might impress them and give them some reason to like us more. A contemporary teacher named Christopher James Gilbert describes it this way. He says, I cannot encourage any fabrication, even for the sake of making people feel good. If I were to fabricate consciously and knowingly, I would not only be ordaining myself their enemy, but also ordaining myself God's enemy. It's just lying. And as a result, it becomes a source for deceiving someone else. It's false words designed to curry favor. And Jacob's trust and dependence upon the Lord should have been reason enough for him to acknowledge what God has said and given to him and do so with the trust that God would work out whatever might follow as a result. Even if, even if that meant that Esau might in fact attack him over it. Nonetheless, The right thing to do is to stand with God in truth. But in this weak, stressful moment, it seems Jacob can't help but rely on the old tactics about fall back, falling back to who he was traditionally in this deceptive way. So then in verse four, now we want to see what comes from the deception that Jacob is bringing to this moment. Verse four, then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, well, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Leah, likewise, came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. All right, now we reach a moment in the narrative that we've been waiting for for nearly two chapters. This is that climactic moment in which we finally get to find out what is Esau going to do when he meets up with Jacob? Well, it wasn't a battle after all. Esau sees Jacob bowing on the ground and all, but he runs to him, embraces him and kisses him. And then the two men start crying. And I can't help but think they're crying for very different reasons. (laughs) Esau, you would imagine, is sincerely happy to see his long lost brother after 20 years. So whatever animosity might have existed for a while that has long since disappeared, it seems. And now he just sheds tears of joy and happiness over seeing his brother. Now, Jacob, on the other hand, I wish I could have filmed this, right? I wish I could have the camera squarely on Jacob's face right as the embrace takes place because he's watching his brother run at him and he's just, you know, stealing himself for something and then, oh, a hug, a kiss. What is this? And then he starts to cry. And I have to think his tears here are tears of relief and maybe even a bit of confusion and thankfulness all mixed in together. He's beside himself with surprise. Now, the question for us to answer in this moment is what does Jacob learn from this response. Because, you know, this is a learning opportunity. If you've been thinking about one thing happening a certain way for so long and then all of a sudden it goes a different way, that's a learning moment. You sit back and you try to take stock of it to evaluate how did this happen? So the question for us is, does Jacob credit his tactics or God's blessing? Did this come about because of all of the scheming and the deception or did this come about because of God's blessing for Jacob? Jacob. Remember, Jacob had sent ahead of him this caravan of animals and servants in the attempt to sway, to appease Esau's anger before Esau actually came and met him. Do You remember that from a couple of chapters ago, right? And that lavish gift of some 500 animals, I think we counted it to be, was intended to buy peace with Esau. So was that the reason Esau is so friendly now at his arrival or was it? The fact that he bowed down seven times or what was it that he did that has caused this kind of outcome? Now, before we get to the answer, there's this little matter of introductions, as we see already. Esau uh, looks around, sees this whole caravan on Jacob's side and says, well, my goodness, where did all these people come from? And by that question, it's apparent Esau didn't expect Jacob to return with a family. He didn't expect him to return married and having kids. But here it is. He's got this entourage. So Jacob introduces them one at a time. And if you notice, each of them comes one at a time, bowing down before Esau, the wives and the children, each child, each woman bows down in the same order that they were approaching in this caravan. And the act of bowing is an acknowledgement of authority. So since Jacob is the senior most member of his family, the patriarch of his family, should he bow to someone, he is saying that that person has greater authority than me. And as that happens, immediately everyone in Jacob's family falls in line because no one in Jacob's family has higher authority than Jacob. So by Jacob's bowing, everyone else knows I must bow as well. So the whole family is saying essentially that Esau is someone that rules over them. But that's not the truth. Here again, we have a problem in Jacob's approach to Esau. According to God, Jacob is the superior. He should have been the one receiving Esau's patronage, not the other way around. And by the way, in eternal terms, the Edomites will be the servants of Israel, according to Scripture. Not the other way around. In other words, Jacob doesn't have the power by his own nature or decision making to change God's eternal purposes. So now Esau raises the question. Of Esau's gift. Now we get to find out just what effect did that gift have on Esau's approach. Verse 8. And he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. But Jacob said, no, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one who sees the face of God. And you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. Thus, he urged him and he took it. All right, so Esau asked this question. I think this is a funny question, frankly. He says, by the way, what was with all the people? What's with the company that you had coming out streaming at me like that? What was all that about? What we learned by that question is Esau did not even perceive all of those things as gifts. He couldn't make out what it was. Instead of appeasing Esau and winning him over, it simply confused him. So what effect did it have on him? He never imagined they were gifts. He had no reason to expect such a gift. There's no cultural rule that would have expected something like this. From Esau's perspective, Esau and Jacob were just brothers. They weren't enemies. So he had no way to understand what Jacob was up to here. What Jacob has succeeded in doing is outsmarting himself. Though he thought he was making a sacrifice to reconcile himself with his brother, in the end, his sacrifice was never accepted as such. It was pointless, it was worthless, and it gained no advantage for him in his relationship with his brother. None at all. We can see now that Jacob's tricks amounted to nothing in the attempt to protect himself from Esau. God had already addressed it. Esau was already approaching with no animosity. God had already dealt with that in Esau's heart. But Jacob's plans and schemes were still the way Jacob perceived the need to solve this problem. And in reality, God had already put a plan in place to heal the wound and make the gesture unnecessary. Now, there's an interesting picture formed in their relationship because the relationship between Jacob and Esau can allow us to draw a comparison to the gospel and to the reconciliation that God has prepared for us through Christ and the cross. Like Jacob, we were once enemies with God himself. We were made such by our sin nature. We were at war with God by our nature as sinners. In our conscience, even as sinners, many of us, most of us, probably had this instinctive appreciation of a coming judgment. Even if we weren't willing to acknowledge it, even if it perhaps wasn't something we gave much thought to, deep down inside, most men, if they haven't seared their conscience, are imbued with a instinctive appreciation for coming judgment, of a reckoning day that God will have for all of us. And since we are enemies of God by our fallen nature, we had little hope of surviving that moment of judgment. We were in fear. Hebrews says that unbelievers live in fear of death all their lives because of that instinctive appreciation for judgment one day. So as a result, here's what many people do. Maybe you and I did this before we were believers. I know I did to a certain extent. We try to make preparations to appease God's wrath. We look for things that we could do to make that eventual meeting go a little better. Maybe we perform works of one kind or another. Maybe we try to give gifts of sacrifice to a church or to other people. Something that we hope will curry favor with a God who we know is not very pleased with us. Those sacrifices were the best we could offer because, after all, we can't go back in time. We can't erase the past. There's no way I could take away the mistakes I've already made. So the best I can hope to do, sort of like Jacob here with his brother, the best I can hope to do is just make the next time we meet go a little better than the last time. But just like Jacob, our gifts, our sacrifices, they're useless. Because God's already solved the problem. He gave his only son as a sacrifice in our place. And then, having offered that perfect solution, God has no purpose in and no use for anything we might pile on top of that. The kind of payment we might send ahead, so to speak, in the way that Jacob did, passes by with no value for a God who's already solved the problem. God declines our offers of works absent faith. Scripture says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. In fact, our gifts of service and sacrifice are useless. If our relationship with God is to be repaired, then it must come on the same basis that Jacob and Esau's relationship was repaired. That is by God divinely repairing the wound. God, in this case, making a sacrifice on our behalf in Christ. It's a beautiful little picture. So here's Jacob hearing from his brother that his gift has done nothing for his brother. Now, wouldn't you expect Jacob at this point to say, oh, well, okay, no reason to give it then. (laughs) Might as well take all that back. No, he doesn't. What does he say? You must keep it anyway. What's behind that? What's going on in Jacob's heart? If it doesn't serve the purpose of appeasing Esau, then what's the reason in insisting Esau keep it at this point? Is he just trying to save face? No. In fact, look what Esau says. Esau says, I have plenty. The word in Hebrew for plenty there is rob, R-A-B, R-A-B, which means an abundance or enough. I have enough. I've got plenty. So what we learn there is Esau is at least as rich as Jacob is. And therefore, these gifts are not amounting to a whole lot for Esau. They're tokens. They really don't mean much to him. So he has no reason to take it. And then Jacob, in response to that, says, no, I want you to take it. And in verses 10 and 11, he gives three reasons why he wants him to take it. And these three reasons fit into our experience in what happens after God has brought us into the family of God by faith. First, Jacob says he has seen the face of God in Esau's welcome. Only the night before, Jacob had been with God face to face in the form of the angel of the Lord. And in that encounter, Jacob had come to realize that fighting against God was unproductive and instead he needed to let God fight for him And he could rest in that. Now, he says he sees the Lord's face, so to speak. And what he means is, I see the work of God in this moment. I see God now present in the very fact that you would welcome me with hugs and kisses. You represent to me the face of God in my life, because this is exactly what God said he would do for me. He blessed me. In other words, this is a gift to God. Secondly, Jacob says, God's already dealt graciously with me. He knows that God has been offended by his behavior, by Jacob's behavior on many times and in many past occasions. And despite all of Jacob's flaws and all of the offenses that Jacob has done, nonetheless, God has remained faithful. God is still protecting him. God is still blessing him. Folks, that is the definition of grace, unmerited favor. And so Jacob looks at Esau and says, you have to keep this because God has dealt so graciously with me. Finally, God, uh, Jacob says, he has plenty as well. But in this case, the word plenty here is actually a different Hebrew word than the earlier one. Here, the word is kol, K-O-L. And its meaning in Hebrew is different than the earlier one. Here, it means I have all things. I have everything. In practical terms, what Jacob was referring to was the fact that he had received in the birthright all of Canaan, He had received the full measure of of inheritance from Isaac. So in a practical sense, he was simply telling his brother, look, you may have a lot, but I've got everything. But at a deeper level, he's also indicating the reality of what believers have versus unbelievers. As a believer, this man, Jacob, has an eternal inheritance that is going to dwarf anything he has on earth and is solely the providence of believers, something Esau has no part in. So Esau takes the gifts at the insistence of Jacob. Here's the new Jacob shining through a little bit, where before he wanted to give a gift to Esau to solve his own problem. Now he wants to give gifts for totally different reasons. And once again, that relationship gives us a picture of how we now, in faith, respond to the gospel having believed it. Because once we recognize the work of God on our behalf, our entire attitude toward doing works changes. Where before we might have done works in some form, works of service, gifts of sacrifice, pledges, ritualistic efforts in churches, all of those things we were doing in an attempt to appease a God who, frankly, had no interest in that kind of appeasement. Now, by grace, through faith, we enter into a relationship for the first time in a way that can please God, and now what before we may have given to appease, now our heart has changed and we give God gifts of service or sacrifice for totally new reasons, out of thanking Him or out of a witness of God in our life or out of a recognition that nothing in this world matters when we have an eternal inheritance that we are waiting on. And so we should never care to keep anything we have here beyond what's necessary. We've come to know God in the face of Christ. We've watched God give us grace. We've come to understand the depths of the eternal inheritance that awaits And knowing these things, we can give back freely and joyfully. You see the difference? Same gift, same giver, same receiver, totally different heart, completely different purpose. That's the heart of Jacob now with Esau. So having made peace with Esau, Jacob recognizes that they are on different paths and with different futures. Look at verse 12. Then Esau said, well, let us take our journey and go and I will go before you. But he said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, well, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. And he said, well, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Well, Esau apparently is so happy about the reunion that he assumes Jacob now is going to come be with him and his family in the place he lives in, which is in Seir. And Seir, of course, is the mountainous region of Edom, south of Canaan. It's the land where Esau's descendants settled, the place that becomes Edom later. But Jacob knows God's promised him a different land. God has promised him Canaan. And that is where he will be. And like his father before him, he wants to settle in that land while he awaits his inheritance. So he has no interest in going to see her at all. But instead of addressing that issue directly with Esau, Jacob decides not to spoil the moment. And I don't want to judge him here too harshly because in light of all that's happened and how this whole moment transpired, maybe this was the smart way to approach it. But what he does is makes an excuse He has a tired family and tired cattle and so on. And he really can't go down to see her right now. He says instead, you go on and I'll follow you. I'll just come a little more slowly. Well, hearing that, Esau says, well, okay, let me just leave a few of my men behind. So at least you know how to find me. The point being, they could guide him into the land and help get him to where Esau lived. But then again, Jacob politely declines and asks to be allowed to go on his own. Now, you have to read between the lines here a little bit to know what's really being said. But it would have been clear to Esau. Esau understands, oh, you're not coming to see her, are you? And if he had asked the question, I'm sure Jacob would have said, no, I'm not. And so instead of that awkward moment, perhaps even insulting moment for Esau, Jacob uses the thinnest of excuses not to follow, one that is so transparently thin that it allows for Esau to know, There's no record in Scripture that Jacob ever goes to Seir and ever meets up with his brother. They only see each other once more, and it's when they bury their father in the land. Jacob's refusal was enough for Esau to know that these two did not have a common future. They were brothers, but just because Jacob came back in the land was no reason for Esau to think that somehow they were going to rejoin in life together. They had different destinies, and he declines to be with them. Verse 17, Jacob journeys then to Succoth, And built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock and therefore the place is named Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padam Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the son of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohai Esfael. Well, Jacob first camps were told in Sukkoth. That's a place just east of the Jordan. So he's not yet in the Promised Land. He's just outside. And he stays there long enough to build a house and a tent for his animals. That's why we call the place Sukkoth, because that's what the word means, booth or tent. Now, he's there probably for one to two years. That would have been the time really required for him to take the time to build a house. And we don't know why he spent so much time at Sukkoth. But for whatever purpose, he's there for a time, and then he's into the land. You notice when he gets to Shechem, it says he camps before the city. This is the ancestral home. This is as close as Jacob gets to a hometown in the land. But he doesn't go in the city. He camps outside the city. Does this sound familiar? Like we study with Abraham and Isaac. These men always remain wanderers. And as we've said many times, don't get the impression in your mind that somehow that's just the lifestyle they had going back into their history and so they remained in their lifestyle. No, this was a conscious decision. They were city dwellers before God pulled them out of Ur. And they were made to be wanderers as proof of a faith that what God was promising them was not going to be realized in the life they had on earth in the first time. That they were knowingly waiting for a new life and a new body in the kingdom in a future day, and in that day they would receive the inheritance God had promised. And so they purposely remained wanderers, did not attach themselves to anything in the culture and in the cities around them, so as to make the point by their lifestyle that this will be my land, but yet is not. That is a person who has eyes for eternity. The best Jacob does is to buy a small plot of land near Shechem to accommodate his family. Just the fact that he buys land which has been given to him by God, is proof in itself that he understood God's grant was not going to come in his lifetime. It would come in a later lifetime. And it shows him looking forward to that eternal inheritance. So on that land, he sets up an altar. El Elohi Israel, it means the mighty God of Israel. How he must have been rejoicing at being back in the land after all those years. And that is the end of just act one of the story of Jacob. Act two begins with his sons in the land. And then as we get into Joseph's time, act three at the end of Jacob's life. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the chance to see once again the gospel in the books in the pages of of Genesis and the chance to understand the truth of our salvation. But also, Father, the responsibility that comes with those who have been brought to faith. Our responsibility, Father, to walk in what we know to lean on you, to trust that your plan, Father, is is going to guide us to where you want us to be. We know we'll face enemies, Father. We know we will face challenges. I pray, Father, you give each of us the confidence not to try to deal in our own strength or with our own schemes, as Jacob did from time to time. I pray as we finish this part of his story, we come away with an understanding of how much it means that you are in control of all things. That even when our eyes can't see past our circumstances, even when our schemes, Father, seem the only way out, we can trust, Father, that you can can change things even before we know it. And you can cause things to work out for good, despite how it looks as though there's no hope. Give us eyes for eternity and a heart to follow even when we see nothing to have hope in. For your word, Father, is more powerful than anything we might encounter in this world. Let us go into this time of communion, Father, with our hearts and our eyes directed toward you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.